Shalom, and welcome to Heretics Standing at Sinai, a podcast for those in or adjacent to the Jewish community who are searching for a place to deepen their spirituality without sacrificing their rationality. I am Rabbi J. Tel Rav, and each week we'll have a conversation about new ways to exist in the world as an intentional presence and finding new ways of making our lives mean something. Whether you've been exploring Jewish spirituality for years, or this is your first time considering it, we're glad you're here. This week, I'm joined by Allison Lear. She showed up in my life not that long ago with two amazing little kids and her partner. They came to one of our services for families with young children, and immediately I fell in love with all four of them. They have been a beautiful presence here at Temple Sinai, but my relationship to Allison really took a a wonderful step forward when she signed up for my Judaism boot camp class. It has been the most wonderful journey, and she sits with us each week and asks questions that clearly indicate that she's not just receiving the information, but thinking about it on a much deeper level. And I feel really lucky to have you sitting here with me, Allison, and look forward to the conversation we're about to have. Thank you. Likewise. So what I find is it's so nice and helpful, uh, rather than a biography about what you've accomplished in your professional career, to just hear a little bit about how you've walked your path thus far, how you come to be sitting here. Maybe you just share a few thoughts about your spiritual journey thus far. Sure. I grew up in New Hampshire in a small town, and my parents were both, we were transplants from Massachusetts. My parents were both raised Catholic, but we were not brought up in any particular religious tradition. We were sort of hippies. So I had a pet goat and we grew our own vegetables. And then, you know, I, my parents were both artists and their community was a community of artists and intellectuals, sort of Dartmouth adjacent because we were up there. And so I grew up with creative people and thinking people and, but without God. And I think I, I began my life as a sensitive artist type of kid. I was moved by things. I was sincere. I was very earnest. And I, but I didn't have a connection. I had a sense of divinity and spirituality and otherness, but I didn't have a sense of God because I I don't actually think it was something that we talked about in our, as I got older and my family situation, you know, my parents' relationship deteriorated. I started growing a little bit of a crust (laughs) and I became a much more cynical person. And I think a person that almost outright rejected divinity and God and spirituality because um, I found them irrelevant or not helpful or or perhaps I was just rejecting my parents softness the way that they they were seekers and I think I was rejecting perhaps the seeking of divinity and I became much more focused on corporeal interests and that was my focus through my academic career and all of that and you know and I started on a creative career and then took a left turn and ended up working in finance but I never lost my need to be creative and I think that is part of being human is the drive toward making something where there wasn't something whether that's Mm -hmm. art or whether that's bread or uh, a dress. I can't sew, but my sister can. That's something that binds all of the people in my life. That the, My lineage is a creative one. It's brought me back. 
And my kids brought me to Temple Sinai, right? We started coming because Elizabeth wanted to start going to religious school. But my kids have been bringing me back to myself in that way, in their natural, wide-eyed state. Wow. Yeah, that's... Wow. First of all, the almost commune-like, idyllic existence that you described from childhood has been a fantasy for Julie and me our whole relationship. We've always dreamt of finding those people. Yes. We think that they're our people. Yes. But I was thinking about how the commitment to to beauty and creation, whether it's creation of ideas as academics mm-hmm. or creation of, of art or creation of just perspective, all of those things in my mind are really aligned with what Rami Shapiro in the book is is creating as an expanded notion of God. Yeah. And the fact that that community removed, or your family at least, removed God from the conversation is not at all surprising. Not actually all that problematic unless nobody helps you reconcile terminology. All the things you're describing your parents communicated to you about seeing beauty and wonder and uh, the drive to create, Mm. all of that is perfectly in line with what Shapiro and I would say are the, the essence and most valuable parts of Judaism. It's, you know, it's right there. And that's been something I've, as I've become part of the Temple Sinai community and in our boot camp classes, and even with the holidays that we celebrate as a family, my family lights candles every Friday night. It's become a really wonderful tradition that we started during COVID with my in-laws. But how do I make sense of these prayers if I don't have a understanding of what the word God means to me? And my daughter asked me recently, Mom, what does what does God really mean? Oh Which <laughs> it's like, I don't know, Elizabeth, it's nine o'clock and it's lights out time. But I've been wrestling with this idea in a in the way that you talk about God has almost a a different channel, a different route into understanding that concept for me that it's not a necessarily God isn't a guy with agency. Mm-hmm. There's no old man. And the other thing I'll add to that 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 idea is. And I spoke about this a lot with our, our non-dual Judaism circle last mm-hmm. year, but we we discussed how once you embrace and find really meaningful the idea of non-duality, then when you come into a situation with a traditional prayer service where, on the surface, it appears to be a completely non a, a, a completely dual experience. Baruch Atah is you addressing the other. Blessed are you. You know, God, you're over there somewhere. I'm speaking to you. There's me and there's you. And I so that's the dynamic of a traditional service. But the non-dualist or the monist has the opportunity to translate on the fly, real time, what these expressions mean to them. And at first it took a lot of work. And I find now it's effortless. I can offer the prayers of the Sidor in a traditional service and everyone in the room is having a different experience all at once. My experience is one that is completely coherent with my with my theology. I don't have to sacrifice any part of my rationality mm-hmm. to, to access that piece of spirituality. It's so, what you said just now really struck something in me. I grew up doing, theater was my art. Through college, That's I thought I was gonna work in theater. Mm-hmm. And there's something magical about sitting in a room receiving wisdom or art and everybody having their own experience together 
that is like that's fundamental to what it means to be a person yeah is both the receiving and the interrogating yeah. of the information that we're receiving on a personal and collective level is yeah it's missing yeah. in a lot of our spaces. I it think. sure yeah. is, because we focus too much on how everyone in the room is having their own experience mm-hmm. and not as much on the fact, and it, you'll read it in just a moment, that though that there is a collective experience at the mm-hmm. same time, and both have to exist. The you know the yesh and the ain, mm-hmm. if you will, yes. but you've got individuals who are part of a singular experience. Choral singing. I loved our the service on Friday night I did theater and I did choir and I did all the, but part of what that was for me was being part of a community. Choral singing is so individual and also so collective. You have to lift your own voice to its best. You have to do your best to sound your best, but you can't sing in a choir the same way you would sing a solo because part of it is the blending. Yeah that we have to be balanced, we have to be together to create something that whole is truly, truly greater than the sum of its parts. I remember Amitai coming home. He's he's quite a a lovely little flute player. Mm. And he plays his part at home, practices it, and it's awful, but he has no concept of it. (laughs) I remember the day he came home after the band had finally, for the first time, put all the pieces together, and his mind was blown had no mm. idea how his piece, his part was going to fit into the, the the entire arrangement. It was so cool. What to... a great metaphor. Yeah, right? Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, let's start with a blessing over learning some Torah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kitshanu bamitzvotah vitzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. This chapter is on humanity. My dearest Aaron Herschel, When we began our correspondence, I did not know what to expect either from you or from myself. Would I be able to answer your questions in a manner that furthered your knowledge and deepened your ability to question? Or would I simply overwhelm you with information and drown out your ability to see for yourself? Your recent letter suggests you can learn and think. I had asked you the question, what is the purpose of humanity? You answered well. Let me add some thoughts of my own. Following the twofold nature of God, as both Yesh and Ain, there are two ways of knowing the world. From the perspective of Yesh, the world is a collection of diverse, separate, and transient beings competing with one another for survival. From the perspective of Ain, the world is a homogeneous one with, without time, space, and separate beings. To become overly attached to either perspective is to miss God's shlemut. God, as God, however, cannot know this wholeness, for knowing requires that one is separate from that which is known, and nothing is separate from God. Yet the shlemut of God requires that knowing. Thus, It is God's nature to manifest beings capable of perceiving both form and emptiness, and that which includes both, God. The human being is among those beings. We have been created to know the greater unity of God. We are not here to amass fortunes. 
We are not here to win wars or competitions. We are not here to earn rewards or make for ourselves a great name. We are here to know God. And through our knowing, effect God's self-realization and self-knowing. We are not an accident. We are a necessary extension of God's greater wholeness. How do I know this? Torah reveals it to me. Look at the creation of humankind in Genesis. In chapter 1, we learn that men and women are created in the image and likeness of God. But it doesn't tell us how or why. We learn both those in chapter 2. Yes, I know that the two stories are not the same, and we can argue forever in hopes of reconciling them, but this is an argument from which I will, will refrain. I am interested in the accuracy of the message, not the mishugas, the craziness of the medium. So what do we learn in chapter 2? It says, Neither trees nor herbs were on the earth, for God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no human to work the soil. Here, we learn the why of humanity. Our job is to till the soil. What, are we all supposed to be farmers? You see, I can read your mind. This is what you were thinking, is it not? And no, we are not all to be farmers. Torah is telling us something far more profound. To understand what Torah is teaching, we must ask two questions. First, what does it mean to till the soil? And second, what is the soil that we humans are to till? Tilling the soil means breaking up the hard-packed earth and allowing it to breathe. And what soil are we talking about? The soil that is humanity. It also says, God formed the human from the dust of the earth and God blew into its nostrils the breath of life and the human became conscious and alive. Can you see the teaching here? We are the soil that needs tilling. We become hard, dry, airless, and lifeless. Our task is to bring breath back into the soil just as God breathed breath into the soul. Bringing breath back to the soil of humanity means to open ourselves up to the world, to engage life in a manner that promotes life. Compare two other biblical teachings, the Tower of Babel and the Heavenly Ladder of Jacob. In the case of the Tower, the people of Earth unite to build a tower with its top in the sky in order to make a name for ourselves. God rejects their efforts. In the case of the Ladder, Torah tells us that Jacob, quote, had a dream. A ladder was set on the ground and its top reached to the sky and the angels of God were going up and down on it. End quote. God blesses Jacob. Now, note, both the Tower of Babel and the Ladder of Jacob reached up from the earth, quote, with its top in the sky, end quote. The wording is identical. So why the different reactions from God? While both the Tower and the Ladder link earth and heaven, in Babel, the people sought to escape the one and rise to the other. In Jacob's dream, the two are unified through the two-way flow of divine energy, the angels. God rejects anything short 
of completeness. So now you must ask yourself this. If the purpose of humanity is to realize both Yesh and Ain, and thereby reveal the Shlemut of God, what does that mean to me as an individual? How can I fulfill my destiny as a human being and realize God in my own life? That is the work of Tikkun and Teshuvah. Tikkun HaOlam honors the Shlemut of God in the outer world, making for harmony among different peoples, nations, and even species. Tikkun HaNefesh honors the Shlemut of God in the inner world, bringing harmony to the conflicting urges of body and mind. And Teshuvah is returning the mind to God. When your awareness is on the present rather than the past or the future, you are open to what is. And what is, is God. We must talk at some point about how to practice teshuva in your daily life, and we will. But not just yet. Bishalom. I have lots of thoughts on this, <laughs> this letter, but I'm going to open it up and see. Allison, you were taking furious notes while we were sharing that moment together of, of wisdom. you want to reflect aloud on what you're thinking at this point? Yeah, yes, I think the biggest reflection for me right now goes back to um, something you said earlier, that you and Julie have always almost wanted to find yourselves in a commune environment. And I wonder, thinking about Tukun and Teshuvah, how can we repair the inner if we remove ourselves? If these two concepts are linked, I think that the drive to be around people like oneself and the drive to be in an ideal environment impedes personal growth. Oh, you beat me to it. (laughs) You can look around the world and most of the other major faith traditions that one could call to mind rapidly would probably find somewhere in that in their in that structure an element of monasticism or asceticism the active effort to remove oneself from the world mm. you won't find it in Judaism it doesn't exist Judaism has always emphasized the importance of engaging with the world and we emphasize retreat mm-hmm. but that's more like shabbat the opportunity to remove yourself for a period from the busyness of life so that you can appreciate when you return, you can be refreshed and, and fresh new perspective. But no, we do not we do not sit in permanent silence. Judaism has never seen that as the highest mm. use of life. Well, and that, right, the concept, I, my dad talked, used to, my dad is a historian in his own right and a reader and incredibly engaged in I, the world of ideas. And he used to talk about utopia, the book. What utopia means is no place. There isn't a place that is perfect. Is that the root of the, the Latin for the word utopia? That's it means what, no that's place. That's what my dad told me. Huh. But I can look it up. I um, found myself this year on my sabbatical at a new location for my silent retreat. Um, for last bunch of years, I've gone to a Catholic monastery up outside Mystic, and I wanted something new. So I stumbled into a Buddhist retreat center. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know a bit about Buddhism. 
I'm not, I'm not an expert, but I didn't know that I stumbled upon a particular expression of Buddhism from Korea called Wan Buddhism. Mm. And the more time I spent with these folks and I read their scriptures fanatically, I now am ready to call them the reform Buddhism of the world. There are many significant differences, but one of them that I really appreciate is they reject the idea of monasticism. Mm -hmm. Their understanding of the Buddha's message is you got to get out there in the world and share this brilliance with those who haven't yet found it. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it's what you and I are doing right now by just engaging in a podcast. We're making sure that what we're struggling with, and it is, it individual struggles is being shared with others who are asking the same questions. I love that. I think it's very reflective of our modern condition. I was reading something earlier today that retailers really missed the mark, thinking that all shopping was going to move online permanently after COVID. Mm. People want to be in the world, interacting with the world. Mm. That's part of what it means to be human. This personal interaction, making eye contact, yeah. right? Yeah, we we do know viscerally the difference between an online experience or a, a virtual experience and and proximity to others. So I love this notion that, and, and here I think Rami Shapiro is using the fictitious Reb Yerachmiel to to take us down the next path of logic. So let me see if I can articulate it. What what Rami is delivering is non-dual Judaism. When an individual gets to a point where he or she can experience themselves as fully integrated elements of the universe, both the the physical and the non-physical, and can see themselves as no more important or valuable than a coffee mug or a goat, then they start to feel a peace with themselves. But what what Rami then does is to say, once you realize that you have these thoughts, then you begin to see what it means to be created in the image of God. That everyone around you is so spiritually bound up with your reality that you can do nothing other than care very deeply for and about them. And Rami pulls up these quotes from Genesis. You know, the, the human was placed in the garden to till and to tend it. And then, and this is a, a chiddish for me, a brand new concept. I've seen it nowhere else in, in Judaic commentary. The idea that the human is the soil. Adam is created from Adama. We spoke about that last week, that there's a, a relationship between the idea of human, Adam, Adam, and the soil, Adama. But to then say that, therefore, the job of the rest of humanity is to till and tend that Adam, each other, is brilliant. So it moves from awareness of non-duality to gratitude for your place in it to a sense of um, commandedness, a sense that I have a responsibility here. And, that, and as he says so beautifully, it's not to build big buildings and put my name on the front. Those are not the proper goals. The proper purpose for humanity is to know God. And when you do, you will know other people in the, the deepest sense of knowing. And that will lead to your roadmap for how to interact. 
I, I wonder, I'm going to bring it back to my, I think children have an innate awareness of this oneness and you see them, at least my kids do, you see them struggling with it, trying to be themselves without, there's an analogy about, you know, letting yourself be tall without casting a shadow on someone else. And I see that in my daughter. After we talked about commandedness in class, I came home and I said to myself, let me see what she thinks of this idea. And I said, we talked about commandedness in class, not about following a list of rules, but about something that you feel. You feel commanded. There's something you must, that you're almost called to do from somewhere inside yourself. She said, yes, at school today, I saw someone getting picked on on the playground and I felt that what I must do is to go and defend him but I didn't because I was afraid because this is a friend that the other kids think that you know we like each other and I was afraid they'll make fun of me but I felt really strongly and now I really wish that I had Mm. done the thing that I felt I should do. We should probably just help everyone here understand how, how cool that conversation was. How old is your daughter? She's eight. She'll be nine in a few yeah. months. She's We're talking a about a, a third grader. I just wanted to make sure everyone had that context. Yeah. What I thought you were going to say when you brought up the idea of children was the innate, not non-duality exactly, mm. but the innate universal bond that we break for them and that we teach them to see differently at such a young age just by helping them organize the world by division. Um, We see division and we have to, you know, we have to see the division between us and other people just to know friend and foe or like and different or all the different reasons we have divisions. Yes. We also have to see division between us and, and things. You know, I have to know how to reach out and pick up my coffee cup if I want my coffee in the morning. But then we also have Ain. And Ain is the integration of non-duality where, where you realize that I am the same as the guy over there and the coffee cup. You know, I'm just stardust. And in those moments, you really, you if, when you balance them, you really emerge with a beautiful, healthy spirituality. He says you can't emphasize, overemphasize either one. You need them both. The guys who go and sit on the mountaintop in perpetual meditation, they're trying to emphasize too much the aim. Mm-hmm. And we certainly know what it looks like for people all over our, our society who emphasize too much the yesh. And the proper balance is what I think we're all shooting for. Yes, I, I, this is something I think about a lot just in terms of the current state of our politics and our culture and and I think something fundamental to American the history of American identity is individual individualism versus collectivism Mm -hmm. and I grew up in a fairly collectivist place but my parents were artists and being an artist is a fundamentally ego-driven individual Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. activity. And I, I see a lot of this in the conversation about masking, not to get onto a you know hot topic, but I think my choice for myself has to be understood in the context of being part of 
a, a greater whole. And I was rereading some of the earlier chapters before our talk. And in the first, I think it's, what is Judaism? He says, the ego was meant to be a way of knowing God in the relative finite world of seemingly separate things, that we have to have an ego so that we can get up and do what we need to do, but that we must not imagine that self as anything more than a vessel of something far greater than it. The ego, the self can't exist in isolation mm -hmm. without inputs mm -hmm. and transmitting and receiving. Mm -hmm. We're not just something there that's there to exert ourselves in the world. Yeah. Musar, which is the Jewish curriculum for character improvement, focuses on lots of different traits. One of them, humility. Uh, I was reminded of it when you were describing your daughter's experience on the playground, I think mm -hmm. you said it was. Humility from Musar's point of view says claiming the right amount of space for yourself. Mm. So obviously some people walk into a room and they claim way too much of the air in the room. And humility in the classic sense means, hey, come on, bring it down a notch. You know, you're, yes. you're, you don't deserve this much of, yes. the, of, the, of the, the space. But humility from a Jewish point of view also means if you walk in the room and you've got something really valuable to contribute, bringing up and claiming more space for yourself, mm -hmm. that is humility from a Jewish point of view. And your daughter was struggling with that space of, I have a role to play here, but I don't feel confident enough. And she's almost nine years old, mm -hmm. an eight-year-old, and a 40-year-old, and an 80-year-old can be forgiven for missing the mark. Mm -hmm. But we know that I had an opportunity, and I didn't quite live up to the potential. And knowing oneself is a, a constant effort that we're all mm -hmm. in the process of developing, you know, understanding our nature yes. and, <laughs> and then modulating it. Yes. Uh, it can be a challenge also, I think, when you are someone who is comfortable taking space to invite other people. It's a, it's a job, I think, almost. It's a task mm -hmm. to invite people. And as a woman, there's a lot to, in the concept of gender and our culture around taking up space. Mm -hmm. right? Women, we're supposed to actually make ourselves smaller, mm -hmm. literally, mm -hmm. physically, make ourselves as small as possible. Yeah. How that is internalized for going out into the world learning how and which is why diversity has to be made so intentional mm -hmm. we have to invite people mm -hmm. in to the conversation because they may not have been raised to know that that's their birthright yeah right it's so beautifully said i so appreciate what you just offered i hope everybody heard that really clearly <laughs> oh i have another question for you from the from the letter he asks how do we do this and I sort of ran through it in my own words a few moments ago, but he talks about tikkun and teshuva. He talks about the tikkun of external world, making sure that everybody has equity in their in their relationship to each other, and that we that use his words, mm -hmm. making harmony among different peoples, nations, and species. And then he talks about tikkun hanefesh, making sure that there's harmony internal to ourselves, to harmony to the conflicting urges of our body and mind. And the other half is teshuva, returning the mind to God. So I think he has it backwards. In several chapters so far, he's talked about it in this order, tikkun and teshuva. But it feels to me like it, it needs to be functionally the other way. I feel like you need to have teshuva, that, that awareness or the, or the effort to return your mind to awareness through meditation or whatever your mechanism is for accessing big ideas so that you emerge 
with that fleeting but transformational sense of non-duality, which then functionally leads me personally to tikkun, to wanting to make the world better, to controlling myself to my highest and best potential. Do you have any thoughts on, on the order that he uses? Mm. I think that tikkun is so much easier than teshuva, mm. and that for some people, for many people, possibly, they can only get to teshuva through tikkun. There's not an awareness necessarily of the self until they go out Ugh. and touch and experience the injustice, right? That you can't know who you are unless you know what you're not, what, what bothers you in the world, maybe. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I, I could not see that. And as you were saying it, it became crystal clear when you when you pause and, and you don't just give someone on the street a dollar, but you sit and just have a chat with them and you realize, you know, the expression there, but for God, go I, mm -hmm. you know, it, they're no different. I could be the one, you know, next month sitting in the same spot they are. Maybe that's the way to break down the sense of division and distinction in the world and see divinity everywhere, which could then get you to to the, the teshuva moment of non-duality. I oh. think it's hard to understand your good... F we are so fortunate, you and I, right? Yeah. We are what we are, but we are also what we are not. There's one more point I want to highlight, because I think it is so important. Uh, almost as a throwaway, but the theme will keep emerging for us. Reb Yerachmiel says... I know you can throw up all these arguments about this text and that text. I'm not interested in the mishugas of that game. He said, I'm interested in the accuracy of the message. And what he says in those few words is, don't get distracted by all the efforts out there to, to pull you away from what Torah's potential is. Um, this past Shabbat, we had Rabbi Ben Spratt, who is with us, uh, you and your family were with us, mm -hmm. and he so eloquently said that Torah, that Judaism has wisdom in our tradition to share with the world. And if we get caught up on the details of how to, I don't know, how to make sure that this thing is kosher or that that holiday is observed properly, we're missing the message. Tradition is important, no question. But I love that he's saying, effectively, don't take it literally. This morning, after our school services, one of our students, I think she's in uh, probably third or fourth, fifth grade, something like that, came up to me and said, Rabbi, I have a question. Did Adam and Eve live at the same time as the dinosaurs or after? And I said, well, I said, first of all, I'm not sure that I really believe in an actual Adam and Eve. Um, I said, the reason for the story is so that, and I taught her about how, you know, no one can claim that my ancestors were better than your ancestors. But in reality, I don't think that that literally happened, starting with two people. So humans never lived at the same time as dinosaurs. But I don't think that we should get too worried about whether Adam and Eve really were literally the start. Mm -hmm. And I think she, I think she understood. I think she got it. I think we don't give kids enough credit for what they can understand mm -hmm. and and their ability to hold two thoughts in their mind at once, right? Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, once again, my amazing and brilliant eight-year-old, 
in the conversation about what really is God, Mom? Um, I said, well, you know, some people believe God is a being. And I don't think that's what I believe. I think, you know, I believe God can be everything. God can be what we do. God can be life. Well, that makes sense. That's smart. What about, we're learning about Noah's Ark. Did that really happen? And I said, I don't know. Right? I don't know if it happened. Probably didn't literally happen exactly that way. She's like, what about Moses? Did he really part the Red Sea? How would he do that? How would that even work? I said, I don't know. If these things happened, they happened so long ago that it's not verifiable. However, we don't have to know if it literally happened to know if there's value in the story, right? Some people believe the Torah is literally true, literally the word of God. Some people believe it's stories for a purpose. And she said, well, that makes sense to me. Stories for a purpose make sense to me. Yeah, I think th- I think that's, that makes, yeah. I don't think I believe God's a guy, <laughs> right? It's just, they're, she's grappling. They're yeah. grappling with this stuff in a really, yeah. and kudos to your teachers, by the way, that they're teaching it in a way yeah. that there's room for a question. Yeah, and kudos to your daughter's upbringing because a lot of parents are confronted with similar questions mm. and they panic and they say, oh, that's a great question. Let's ask Rabbi Jay. Um, <laughs> The answers are far more effective and meaningful when they come from mom. So good for you. Well, we just met you a year ago, and she's been asking these questions since she was two years old. So I right. didn't. You, you had to. Sink or swim. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Allison, do you have any final thoughts that you want to bring up for the conversation today? Uh, I have a thought which has been rattling around in my brain and which got louder after I listened to last week's episode, which is the question of whether God created man, humanity, in God's image, or whether humanity created God in humanity's image, and whether the act of creation is the thing that binds us all. Mm, yeah. Did God create us? Did we create God? Are those two ways to say the same thing? Yeah. Right. How about any sort of relationship of substance? I think that, you know, let's use our partners because they're the Mm -hmm. the most obvious. They are not the same person as they were when we met them. Mm -hmm. We've had an impact. We have created this version of them by being a part of their lives. And we have come to understand them differently over the years we've been together, the experiences we've shared. And so we have been impacted by their presence in our lives. They have created in us an element of new understanding and it all happened at the same time as part of the same process. Mm. Yeah, that's really a cool question. And humanity has continued to recreate God in our image, mm-hmm. you know, it, with each new era of, of thought evolution and technical evolution and psychological evolution god takes on new forms have you read octavia butler parable of the sower no octavia butler was an african-american science fiction writer this was a almost harsh look at our world but the parable of the sower is about a young woman in a, living in a world that in the book takes place now, right? She wrote this in the 90s, I believe, before she died. And um, the this young woman is creating her own religion. 
and her God is change. The only lasting truth is change. Everything, we change everything we touch and everything we touch changes us. And what you just said was really... Yeah, and if we were to maybe not worship that, but honor it... And embrace it. And embrace it. Be okay with it, that this is what you talked about. And and what Remy Shapiro is talking about here is that this doesn't need to be a religion only of looking backwards. Mm -hmm. And this Mm -hmm. is what you and our Mm -hmm. guest Mm -hmm. on Friday talked about. Mm -hmm. This is about carrying that with us, but looking forwards. And Mm -hmm. what are we creating together and embracing that, the value of that, that we have to be open. Yeah. Uh, not to not to introduce division into the conversation, mm-hmm. but it is telling. If you were to embrace change, to honor it, to see it as divine, then you would have to acknowledge the difference in the names of our movements. Mm. Reform means to take something and mm-hmm. to, to make it new again. Conservative mm-hmm. means to <laughs> conserve the past. Yeah. Orthodox means literally there's only one way. And and of course it, it applies beyond religion as well. Um, in politics, conservative and progressive, you know, they really just in their name emphasize the difference between what Octavia yeah. is trying to trying to make us think about. Mm-hmm. Wow. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you. This was so fun. I'm really glad that we spent this time together. To our listeners, you can click below for a transcript of today's conversation where you'll find links to Octavia Butler's book and to some of the other sources that we mentioned. Each week, I leave you with something to think about so that your time with us next time is built on something that you've already been working on. So your homework this week is to ponder the question of evil. That is next week's letter. And here we ask, where does evil come from? And is it possible to eradicate evil from a person? That's the question. If you enjoyed this and you want to be notified of new episodes as they come out, you can click on the subscribe button and be sure to share the idea with someone that you know is going to enjoy exploring spirituality in this way like you are. Until next time, all you heretics out there, stand proud.